Well, again, a good morning to all of you and a warm welcome to all of you, as well as a welcome to our guests. We're so glad you're here today. We've had a beautiful morning, great music from uh, these songs that were found in the movie today, so we're grateful for that team of singers. Amen. And uh, it's good to be with you on this beautiful summer day. Um, just want to say that Forrest Gump was released in 1994. How many of you have seen the movie? Yeah, a lot of people have seen the movie. How many of you have read the book? Okay, wow, nobody. In the first service, there were a few people. Uh, the book is quite different than the movie. In fact, the author of the book uh, said that the movie took the edge off Forrest Gump and kind of made it a much uh, sweeter story. So uh, I would encourage you, if you get a chance, you might want to read the book to learn a little bit about uh, this movie. Um, so what I would say is uh, the, the thing, the movie's got lots of storylines. It's very complex. Uh, but one of the things it's kind of famous for is just an enormous amount of quotes uh, that get quoted later now uh, from that movie when it was released in 1994. You heard some of those in the words of gathering, right? Uh, but, but here are some of the quotes from uh, the Forrest Gump movie. Uh, stupid is as stupid does from uh, Forrest himself. Uh, about his mother, my mama always said life was like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. That's a pretty famous one, right? I don't really think that's true because they now have guides with Fannie Mae. You can figure it out, right? Um, uh, you have to do the best with what God gave you. That's from his mother, Mrs. Gump. Uh, and then Forrest says, my mama always said you got to put the past behind you before you can move on. That's probably one of the more profound ones. Let me say that one again. My mama always said you have to put the past behind you before you can move on. And then another quote from Forrest, Mama always said dying was a part of life. I sure wish it wasn't. That's a sweet quote. What's normal anyways from Forrest? Another one, uh, Mama always had a way of explaining things so I could understand them. And then, you know, he had this long love affair with Jenny. Do you remember that? Uh, a, a girl that he meets from his very early life. So he says, me and Jenny goes together like peas and carrots. I, that's a very sweet, sweet. And then Jenny has this quote, which begins this whole image of uh, Forrest running, right? And you'll remember it. Listen, Forrest, you promised me something, okay? Just if you're ever in trouble, don't be brave. Just run, okay? Just run away. And then Jenny has this famous quote, which I think gets quoted more than anything. Run, Forrest, run. How many of you have heard that quote before, right? right. And then um, there's actually... Uh, a quote from when he actually goes on the long run, which is a major part of the film's storyline. That day, for no particular reason, this is Forrest, I decided to go for a little run. He did have a reason. Jenny had broken his heart, but he doesn't say that. So I ran to the end of the road, and when I got there, I thought maybe I'd run to the end of town. And when I got there, I thought maybe I'd just run across Greenbow County. And I figured since I'd run this far, maybe I'd run across the great state of Alabama, and that's what I did. I ran clear across Alabama for no particular reason. I just kept on going. I ran clear to the ocean. And when I got there, I figured since I'd gone this far, I might as well turn around and just keep going. And when I got to another ocean, I figured since I'd gone this far, I might as well just turn back, keep right on going. And you'll remember he runs all over the country and ends up having people follow him, and he gets lots of media coverage. And then the final quote that I want to lift is, he says, what's my destiny, Mama? And she says, you're going to have to figure that out for yourself. So it's a lot of quotes, and I think the quote I'm lifting up most today is run, Forrest, run, because his running, both as a child 
as a young adult and then later after Jenny breaks his heart and he goes on this nationwide run. That's what connects and kind of sews and weaves the story together if you've watched it, right? Um, and I want to say a little bit about the film itself. Forrest Gump was released in 1994, but it was eligible for awards in 1995. It had multiple, multiple Academy Award nominations, and it won six Oscars. That's amazing to me. Um, and I had forgotten this. Forrest Gump was, was released in the same year as these films. Four Weddings and a Funeral. I don't know if you ever watched that one. Pulp Fiction. I wish I hadn't watched that one, right? Um, I don't do violence well. Uh, Quiz Show, one of my favorite shows. And Shawshank Redemption, which we just talked about last week. So some pretty well-known films, right? And the winner of the Academy Award that year was Forrest Gump. And you may remember uh, there was quite a bit of critique about that because uh, some critics found it very uh, too sentimental, too lighthearted about the major issues it was facing. Some thought Shawshank was a much better film and that it should have won. Some thought Pulp Fiction should have won. Uh, there were other films that are not even listed in the nominations that people had. Uh, but Forrest Gump won Best Picture, and Tom Hanks won his second Oscar for Best Leading Actor. He had done it the year before, uh, but he got it in Philadelphia, but he got it uh, again. And he's one of a few actors that's received Best Actor Oscar consecutively. You know what I'm saying? So it's kind of fascinating uh, that he did this. Now, Tom Hanks has performed in enormous amounts of films. And, you know, he's, he's done Philadelphia. He did his big first one was Splash. You may remember that. He was in a host of other movies, a lot of rom-coms, and then later a lot of more intentional, dramatic films. Um, but th these are the two Oscars that he's received as Best Actor. So that year it also was the second uh, wealthiest or most income film of, of that year, uh, only, only beat out by Lion King. Uh, and it uh, was just an amazing film and well-received. And it's interesting, as years have passed, because you know 94 was a long time ago. I know it's hard to believe. Almost 30 years ago, right? Um, uh, it is now in the National Archives, considered part of Americana, and it's considered a historic film that reflects the culture of the nation, right? Isn't that fascinating? So it, uh, a lot of people have a lot of uh, connections and love for it. And what I want to do now is just talk a bit about the characters. I'm not going to talk about all the characters because there are so many characters. Uh, one of the things you ought to know is Forrest is often portrayed in historical settings, right? Do you remember that? So he, he's with John F. Kennedy. He's with Lyndon Baines Johnson. Uh, he's with Richard Nixon and is at the Watergate Hotel. And it, they make it implied that he's the one who found the tapes. You know, it's, it, it's kind of interesting work. And what's fascinating, this was pretty, uh, pretty cutting-edge cinematography in 1994, for him to be implanted in these historic situations and to look like he was literally there. Do you remember that, right? Uh, there was one particular situation in all of those historic moments that was literally with the person. Does anybody know who that was? He appears on a talk show with Dick Cavett. Do you remember him, right? Dick Cavett agreed to refilm that, that, that event live with him. So that's the only real, real uh, presence. The rest are all created by cinematography. I love that little bit of trivia. You don't, I see. But anyway, so anyway, here are the characters. Are you ready? Uh, so Tom Hanks played Forrest Gump. Forrest is at an early age. He grew up in Greenbow, Alabama, kind of a rural part of Alabama. 
He's deemed to be below average IQ at 75. He is a very endearing character. I think we love his character. He shows devotion to his loved ones beyond belief. He's dutiful. He's a hard worker. He's a sweet man, right? Amen? uh, These character traits lead him into many life-changing situations, and the whole film is about all of those particular situations. Along the way, as I said, he encounters historical figures, events that represent all of these different uh, decades, and the group that sang today just retrieved. It has an amazing soundtrack uh, and lifted up a lot of of famous music, and so you know that as well. Michael, Michael Connor Humphreys was a young kid who played the young Forrest Gump. And I forgot until I watched the film. There's quite a bit of him at the very beginning of the film, you remember. Uh, and uh, it's interesting, in an interview with Tom Hanks, the, the director and producer wanted the, bo- the young boy, uh, Michael, to mimic Tom Hanks' southern accent, right? But it, it wasn't working. And Tom Hanks realized that Michael, the kid, had a better southern accent than he did And so he spent hours and hours mimicking Michael's accent so that they both sounded like the same person. Isn't that amazing? Those of us from the South still think they didn't quite get it right. Amen, right. Robin Wright plays Jenny Curran. I remember she's uh, Forrest's friend from the first day of school. He falls in love with her immediately. And, And throughout the story, it's an up and down with her and their relationship. And he is loyal to her. And she certainly cares deeply for him. Uh, and I think actually loves him, but because of her own uh, tough life, uh, she can't see that. Remember, she's a victim of abuse at the hands of her father, and she goes down a completely different path than Forrest, being pretty self-destructive. Uh, she gets into an assortment of, of movements, later in drug uh, movement. Uh, she just really has a hard life, and there are these periodic encounters with, with um, Forrest in hopes that that'll be restored. Eventually, she re-enters his life when she's a waitress in Savannah, Georgia, Georgia, and eventually introduces a son to Forrest, and they eventually get married, but she dies just a year after they marry from HIV-AIDS. And for that to be mentioned, let alone acknowledged in a film in the early 90s, was pretty cutting edge. Gary Sinise plays um, Lieutenant Dan Taylor. Lieutenant Dan uh, is with uh, Forrest and his friend Bubba Blue uh, in the Vietnam War. And uh, Dan Taylor's ancestors have all died in wars, right? So he anticipates that's what's going to happen to him. Remember, they're ambushed in, uh, in, in the film, and Bubba gets fatally wounded, uh, and Dan loses his legs, and he wants Forrest to leave him there to die because that would be in the tradition of his family. But Forrest, out of his conviction, can't do it. He pulls him out, and he lifts him out, and he saves his life. And for a long time... Dan cannot forgive him for delivering him into this hard reality of living without legs. Eventually, they become partners in a shrimp company together, and, they, and, and at one point in time, uh, Lieutenant Dan forgives him and thanks him for saving his life, and Dan goes on to get married, and actually it ends kind of sweet for him as well. Megaletti Williamson played Benjamin Buford Bubba Blue. You remember, he's a, a forced good friend during the war, Uh, They went through training together, and his love, his focus is shrimp, right? And that's where the Bubba Gump Shrimp Company comes from. If you've ever eaten at one, it all is rooted in this story. And uh, he has a dream of opening a a shrimp boat and having shrimp, and there's this long dialogue (laughs) 
he thinks uh, shrimp is the fruit of the sea, and he goes through this huge, I'm not going to do it for you, I promise, but he gives every possible way to prepare the shrimp. He's a sweet character. He's a good friend uh, to um, uh, uh, Forrest, but as you know, he's fatally wounded in that ambush, and uh, Forrest does this beautiful thing of caring. He could have left him behind, but he takes a great risk of his own life to take him out of the conflict so that Bubba can die in peace. And Bubba's finally words are, and they're really powerful, I just want to go home. And it's, it's a powerful moment. So uh, then the final character I want to lift up is Mrs. Gump, Forrest's mother. Anybody know who played her? Sally Field. Yeah, I forgot that. And uh, she plays this very endearing mother who's always encouraging him despite his challenges. And uh, uh, when she was interviewed, Sally Field said, uh, Mrs. Gump is a woman who loves her son unconditionally over and over. A lot of her dialogue sounds like slogans and cliches, and that's true because that's just who she is. And so she's kind of an endearing character that undergirds him. And then, of course, when she dies of cancer, he returns to take care of her. So pretty, pretty profound and, and beautiful stories uh, in, this, in this film. So I, as I said, the storyline is complex, and there are lots of things. So I'm not going to cover every storyline. So for those of you who are Forrest Gump experts, forgiveness, please. Amen, right? Okay. Uh, the movie starts uh, in, in 1981. Uh, Forrest is sitting on a bus stop bench. Do you remember that? He's come to find uh, Jenny. He hasn't found her yet. Eventually he will at the help of somebody on that bench. But for some reason he begins to tell all of the strangers who are sitting on the bench who change out his life story. And he begins by talking about being a boy in 1956, uh, diagnosed with an IQ of 75, and, um, and then a curved spine. So he has to wear this huge brace and leg braces for his body. And his mom, who runs a boarding house in town, tries to encourage him and strengthen him at every turn and corner. Uh, there's a great scene. Remember, Elvis Presley stays at the uh, uh, the house with them, and Forrest has some influence on his shaky movements, right? Um, and on his first day of school, he meets Jenny Curran, who he immediately falls in love with. She has this terrible home life, but she loves Forrest, and she kind of protects him along the way. And you remember, he's bullied throughout by these group of boys that will come back several times in scenes as well. He, uh, he's running, you'll remember, at one point in time, and because of that, he, uh, he gets a scholarship to the University of Alabama, which I love. Plays football, then goes to the White House, meets John F. Kennedy. Uh, he encounters George Wallace. Uh, there are a bunch of other places where he's in as he is in college. And then he and Jenny re reconnect briefly, and then that falls apart again. When he, when he graduates from college, he enlists in the U.S. Army. And during basic training, he encounters Bubba, his good friend. And they dream of the shrimping business together. He tries to find Jenny again in Memphis, he does, but then it doesn't go well. And then they're soon sent to Vietnam where he meets Lieutenant Dan Taylor, and there they have uh, all of the challenges that I, I told you about. But while he's there, I'd forgotten this part of the story, he learns to play ping pong. Do you remember that? And so he becomes an expert ping pong player, and, and that's going to play well in, in, the, in, the, in the story because later... Uh, he begins to play ping pong as a peace ambassador to China, and that gets him uh, totally recognized. And there are encounters with John Lennon and the Dick Cavett Show and all of these different places. And uh, 
Uh, he becomes a, a kind of a, a spokesperson for a ping pong paddle company, and that gets him a lot of money, which will then help him do the shrimping business. Remember, he uh, goes to New York City and kind of rescues Lieutenant Dan, who's fallen into a difficult place, and uh, in the end, their friendship comes together. When he's discharged, uh, he begins to promote ping pong paddles, which then helps him to be able to do the shrimping business. And you remember, they start the shrimping business, they're not doing very well, but Hurricane Carmen comes uh, to Alabama, and their boat is the only one that survives, so they're the only ones doing shrimping business, and so they have a great, great, successful company, he and Lieutenant Dan. My favorite part is uh, Lieutenant Dan's pretty savvy, and he invests money, and what uh, uh, Forrest tells his mother is, yeah, Lieutenant Dan has invested our money in a fruit company, and we'll never have to work again. That fruit company was Apple Computers, right? Uh, so there's some sweet kind of uh, pieces about that as well. And then Forrest, uh, because of this, um, he uses a lot of the money to support Bubba's mother, which is a beautiful scene. And then, of all things, he becomes a volunteer gardener at the University of Alabama, and that's kind of where it rests. And then he gets a letter from Jenny asking to visit, and that's where we find ourselves back at the bench. And then, as you know, he goes to meet her in Savannah, and that's where he encounters her, realizes he has a son, and they get married, and then they move, she moves back to him. They live together with their son, and she dies a year later, and it, it's really heartbreaking. But one of the really beautiful scenes, I think, is at the very end, after she has died, uh, the film ends with him taking his son to school. And it's just this beautiful moment of kind of circling around from the beginning of his first day to his son's first day. And it's just a very sweet story that uh, has its own deep challenges and brokenness, but it also gives a glimpse of almost 30 years uh, or 20 years of American life uh, from that perspective. So it's, it's a powerful film. Where I want to focus today is um, I want to focus on the, the running stories because they're the ones who kind of really get me. And when I watched the film recently to prepare for this, uh, there are s some great scenes. You remember later in the, these bullies show up periodically. And when he's a young adult, I think they're in high school, he and Jenny, they're walking down the lane to his house. And remember the bullies come up in the truck and try to hit him. Uh, and uh, he runs and begins to run so fast because Jenny says, run, Forrest, run. And he runs so fast uh, that he runs across the football field, and Bear Bryant is there scouting out players from the University of Alabama, and that's how he gets his college education, right? I just love that story. And then, uh, you know, when Jenny breaks his heart, he's sitting on the front porch, and he suddenly gets up, and then he runs down the road, and then he runs across town, and then he runs across the county, and then for over three years he runs, and that's how he meets so many people, and people begin to follow him, and they're encouraged by him, even though he says he's just running to run, but that running is a part of it, and in the end it's the running, he's on TV, that Jenny sees him and makes that final connection. It's beautiful. But the scene that breaks my heart, and it's so beautiful, I'm sorry, I just love this scene, is at the beginning of the film, after he and Jenny have become friends, he's being picked on because of his handicap, the curvature spine, the leg braces. Do you remember that? It's, it, if you haven't seen it, it's a powerful scene. And they're walking home from school, and Forrest is in all this hardware, and those three boys come on their bikes. 
and they start throwing pretty large rocks. It's a hard scene for me to watch, and they hit him in the head. He's bleeding down the head, but Forrest just keeps taking it because he cares about Jenny, and he's not going to leave her behind, and she does her first famous line, run, Forrest, run, and eventually he takes off, and you'll remember he's barely running, and they're getting close to him, and it's a, it's a tough scene. It's really tough. And as he's running, and he gets to running faster, you begin to hear the hardware break apart. And I think it's one of the most profound scenes from the film. He's running as this boy as fast as he can, and those braces begin to break off, and the brace breaks off, and all this hardware, and he just takes off, and he is free. Amen? It's beautiful. If you can't see anything, just Google the running scene with the braces, and you can watch that scene. It is so profound because in that moment, because of her deep love for him and telling him to run as much as he can, he runs to freedom and he outruns those boys and they give up and he begins to run and that then sets the course for the whole space. Why why do we love Forrest Gump? I've been thinking about that a lot this week. Read a lot of articles. America loves Forrest Gump because of his character. You know, sweet, meek, mild, gracious, caring, loving, loyal, uh, you know, he's loyal to country, he's loyal to family, he's loyal to people he cares about, and he tolerates a lot of junk, amen? I think America loves Forrest Gump because he endures. He runs and runs and runs and runs. He keeps going despite all of the brokenness and all of the scenes around him and even in his struggle and his relationship with Jenny. His mom's encouragement, I think, encourages us, but I think Forrest Gump, and maybe it's a little naive, and critics said the movie was too naive in face of all the challenges, but there's something we love about a, a, a hero who can endure and endure and endure again and not be tainted by the world, but continue to be a person with a pure heart. Amen, right? I think that's what we long for. And so I, when I encounter these two scriptures today, they seem to work really well with the, with the film, and I want you to hear them. So if you have your Bible, um, we're going to begin first in Matthew, uh, the Gospel of Matthew in the New Testament. And the worship team uh, chose these passages for me. And at first I'm like, what are you doing? But they make sense now. Amen, right? So in chapter 5 of the Gospel of Matthew in the New Testament, I remind you uh, that Jesus is uh, with his disciples and he's gone up on a mountain and he's beginning to preach and we call that the Sermon on the Mount, right? And as he's preaching to this crowd of people, we also see this in the Gospel of Luke, he begins to offer what we call the Beatitudes. Have you heard that word before? Beatitudes are blessings. And he begins to offer blessing uh, to the folks that are listening, reminding them of what blessed is and what the reward is for that blessing. And in turn, in turn, he is, Jesus is teaching us who we are to be as followers of Christ. Amen? So in chapter 5, verse 3, Jesus begins with blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now Luke says blessed are the poor. In fact, he literally means those who are economically without. But Matthew kind of spiritualizes uh, the blessing here, saying those who are at the most poor in spirit, who think nothing is going to go their way, blessed are they, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Do you see how things get reversed? And in in verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Those who are grieving loss or grieving brokenness or grieving uh, the death or or, or loss of a relationship, 
they will be comforted. God will comfort us in that loss. And here in, in, in verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. We don't really celebrate meek, do we, right? Uh, meek is not namby-pamby. Weak, uh, meek is not weak necessarily, but meek is humble. Meek puts others first. Meek listens and cares for others, and here's their perspective. Meek is not quick to respond in violent or difficult ways. Meek is about the humility of Christ. Blessed are the meek, and this is powerful, they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. There's this teaching that as followers of Jesus, our heart should always be hungering for God's justice and righteousness in the world, and not only hungering for it, but working for it, and we will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Uh, we're not in a culture that offers much mercy, right? But Jesus calls us back again and again to be people of mercy and forgiveness. And, and verse 8, I think it, this may speak to Forrest Gump better than anyone. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. There's something about the simplistic understanding of life that Forrest exemplifies in the film that is so much of what we long for. Uh, we can become tainted, amen? We can become uh, kind of critical, and, and I don't know, maybe not you, but can any of you become cynical, right? right? Oh, this is never going to work, or this is never going to happen, or uh, why do they even think this or that? I've heard time and again, well, he's a dreamer, but he'll be disappointed, right? You know what I'm saying, right? Are you awake out there, right? Okay, all right. Anyway, uh, Jesus says that those who are pure in heart, who long for the vision of God and believe it can happen, they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And I think we think that we have to work for the UN and work for peace. Certainly that's admirable, but we can build peace in our own relationships and our communities, right? We often live in a culture that's at each other, and we're called to be with each other. Does that make sense? We're to be building peace, to, to not say, oh, I heard this, or did you hear that, or blah, 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 right? But are we about building peace and building bridges? And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Can you hear this, that when we are working for God's way in the world, we will receive resistance, right? Come on, you've seen it. When we stand for what God is about, what Jesus is about, what the church is about, we're going to receive resistance because the world doesn't want that in the world, right? We would rather live a world of brokenness and destruction and so forth. And so Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then verse 11, blessed are people, are people who revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets before you. That's hard to hear from me, right? Right? To be faithful in the world means we're going to be persecuted. To be faithful and stand with the gospel and not the agenda of the world means life will not always go smoothly for us, right? When we stand up in the workplace or in our communities or whatever for the poor and those on the edges, when we stand up for what's right and righteousness in the world, we will receive resistance. And Jesus blesses us in the midst of that resistance and persecution. I don't really like that, frankly, right? But I know it's true. And then the second reading today comes to us from Colossians in the New Testament. And I invite you to turn there, if you have your Bible, uh, to chapter 3. 
And uh, I'm sure you're familiar with this book, Colossians. Let's say it together. Colossians. Isn't that fun to say? Let's say it one more time. Colossians, right? Um, just rolls off the tongue, right? Um, but Colossae was the city. It was a Roman city located in the Lycus Valley, which is in present-day Turkey, right? It was 100 miles east of Ephesus, the larger city. The book of Ephesians was written to the church in Ephesus. Laodicea is not far away, and several other key cities that we read about in the Bible. Um, it's interesting with Colossae, uh, it was not a huge city, but it was a substantial city. It was an important city of trade. It had some political and Roman uh, leadership uh, purposes as well. But the thing it was most well known for in the Lycus Valley was wool, right? You know, wool comes from sheep. Yeah, I know a lot of you are city dwellers. Let's try that again. Uh, wool comes from sheep, right? So the sheep were raised in the mountains, which would later produce a volcano that would destroy uh, Colossae, but let's not go there yet, right? Uh, so it was known for its sheep, who in turn created wool, and the wool from Colossae was well-known and well-respected and very high quality, and most of it was dyed red in these factories and uh, facilities in Colossae and distributed throughout the empire. People's clothes were often found their roots in the wool of Colossae. You see what I'm saying? And I'm assuming that also meant the uniforms of soldiers. So wool is enduring. It's strong. It's all those kinds of things. And so Colossae was known for that. So I want you to remember that as you hear these words from Paul and Timothy. They wrote this together uh, to the church at Colossae. Now what's going on there? Why does Paul have to write a letter? Because you know whenever Paul's writing a letter, there's a problem, right? Usually, right? So Colossae had several challenges, and it had conflict, like the church often does. I know that's a shock for you. Um, but in particular, there was a group of people who believed that if you did an extreme ascetic life, kind of self-mutilation or self-abasement or whatever, that if you really worked hard to create this kind of deprivation, you might have this amazing spiritual experience, they said. In fact, you might actually, because of all this kind of deprivation and self-abatement, you might actually witness angels in worship. So there was a deep sense of pushing people to these edges. And as you can imagine, people who had those experiences or thought they had those experiences thought they were a little better than the other people. I know that never happens here, but in some churches, some people think they're holier than other folks, right? Like, uh, you know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 13, remember that Paul is writing about spiritual gifts, but he's really talking about speaking in tongues, right? Do you know what that is, the spiritual language of speaking in tongues? And as your pastor, I don't have that spiritual gift, but I've been praying for it for years, right? I would love to be able to speak in tongues, but I know why God doesn't give it to me because I want it. And I know, I know what would happen if I could speak in tongues. I'd go, well, Anne Marie, I speak in tongues to you, right? You see what I'm saying, right? And so, so I, Paul's reminding us of that beautiful gift of meekness and humility, right? So that's what's going on in Colossae. And there's some conflict within the church beyond that issue. I want you to think about what happens in Colossae, and now I want you to hear these verses. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, get ready, you ready? Clothe yourselves. Do you get it? Wool, fabric, clothing. This was important. The folks of Colossae would get this, right? As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, 
humility, meekness, and patience. Does it sound like what we just read in Matthew, right? These, these key blessings of who we should be as followers of Jesus. But then, then Paul makes it even more difficult. He adds the, ver- the word patience, right? Now, I don't know about you, but that's one of my biggest struggles, right? I don't have patience. I want it to happen now. I want the world to be this now. I want things to resolve now. And, and Paul reminds folks that things don't clear up easily. God's work is working in the world, but we need a deep dose of patience. Clothe yourselves with patience. And then, hear this, bear with one another. That's what we have to do in the body of Christ, right? I mean, frankly, we would not be together if it wasn't for Jesus, right? I mean, our lives would maybe never cross. But because of Christ, we are a body together. But we're all different. We have different opinions. So we have to bear with one another. And sometimes we just rather bear nobody, right? Right? (laughs) Bear with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Jesus brings that up all the time. Remember, we saw that in the mercy piece of the Beatitudes. And now Paul is reminding this church in conflict that we are to be people of forgiveness, right? Now, that doesn't mean we go back to abusive relationships, amen, right? No. But too often, I, maybe you, hang on to things, right? I'm mad at so-and-so. I can't get over it. I've been carrying this grudge for a long time. I'm still mad about this. This didn't get resolved like I wanted. And yet Paul says, if we're to be clothed in Christ, we are always in the spirit of forgiveness and mercy. And then in verse 15, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in the one body, and be thankful. So there's this important reminder, and it's hard. It's hard in in our day-to-day life. Is Jesus guiding me today? Is the rule of Christ leading me today? Or am I wandering off into the places of hatred, destruction, gossip, slander, uh, cynicism? You know what I'm saying? Am I clothed in Christ? Is the rule of Christ in my heart? And then he ends that with, which, with what I think is so important. He ends it with thankfulness, right? And be thankful. And I don't know about you, I say this all the time, but I want to say it again because it's what Paul says here, um, that if we are followers of Christ, we are certainly forgiving and patient and humble and meek and gentle and merciful, but we must be thankful. And frankly, when I'm in a spirit of gratitude and thankfulness, I'm less cynical, right? When I see what God has done and is doing and what God is calling me to and, and the abundance that we have then it helps me to be less cynical and hopeless and more hopeful and possible. And I think Paul was trying to say to these churches in Colossae exactly that, that in fact we should be thankful. And then he goes on. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now that's important, friends. If we're not studying the word daily, how can it dwell richly within us, right? And so I know we're busy But I hope you're taking time each day to read and reflect on Scripture because that's what dwells deeply within us and helps us to live the rule of Christ. And then teach and admonish one another with wisdom and with gratitude, there it is again, in your hearts, and the choir folks in the room are going to love this, sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to God. Singing is a part of our life together. It's what brings us together. And when we sing and praise God together, it unites us together. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And then the teaching goes on 
uh, we move out of this personal relationship of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And in the verses that followed that you heard read are about relationships. Wives, be subject to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. It, it doesn't sound as liberating today as we'd like for it to, but in the ancient world, it was cutting edge that people would be mutual in their relationships, even fathers to children and slaves to masters and masters to slaves. It's still a hard passage, but there's something above it that calls this Roman culture to a much deeper place of mutuality as we live in relationship as followers of Christ. Amen? So as we conclude, I, I want to say to you that I think the gift of Forrest Gump is a, a, a person who doesn't completely, but in many ways reflects these beatitudes and these pieces of clothing that Paul talks about, compassion and mercy and forgiveness and, and that whole gift of what his mom said to him, you know, you, you have to let go of the past to be able to move on into the future. And I think that's true for many of us. We've held on to the past or past hurts or past brokenness, and now we're being led to something new and redemptive in Jesus Christ. Amen, right? This past week uh, has been a week of reflecting this back to me. So I went to Detroit to be with our youth for a few days as we worked at Cass Community Services at United Methodist Mission in Detroit. I don't know why, but I love Detroit. I mean, really, it doesn't make sense. Uh, friends of mine say, Detroit. But I, there's something about Detroit that I just love. And I love being there, and I love being in mission there. And, you know, our church has been there many times, building tiny homes and serving food and doing community gardens. And, and so I was with our youth, about 15 of them, uh, were there this past week working on a mission. And we painted uh, apartments, we mowed lawns, we uh, prepared meals for uh, several hundred people. I mean, just all kinds of amazing things. And, and, and to watch our kids um, come out of their life experience and have this deep compassion and connection with all the people we encountered. I mean, it's a miracle, right? That's not our culture. But the church leads each of us, including our youth, to see beyond ourselves, to be clothed in Christ, and in turn, to serve in mercy and transformation. It was a beautiful week. I mean, I mean I'm mean, i sleeping on a cot in the basement of an old church with, you know, spiders, you know? But the reality is, God is at work in that, right? God is at work in that. And then... Um, uh, yesterday I did a funeral service for Ruth Beauchart. These beautiful flowers come from her service. And uh, she was 101 years old, part of this church indirectly through her son. And her story's amazing. I mean, she grew up in rural Indiana. Uh, she met her husband. Uh, he got called into service in World War II. World War II. Do you remember that war? I mean, I, mean, I wasn't around, but I heard about it, right? But she went wherever he went in his service. And then when he went overseas, she came, she left Goshen, Indiana, and came to Chicago and worked at IBM to prepare and support him when he came back. Isn't that amazing? Really? I love that story. And then when he came back, he got a job, finished his education, and worked so she could go back to college. And they had this mutual life together of uplifting one another in such a beautiful way. Uh, that's, that's against our culture, right? But, but it's Christ culture. It's Jesus culture. It's church culture. It's what we do. Amen? Are you awake out there? Come on, right? And then finally, last night, I, was, I, was, I presided at the wedding of Denise Parmar, who grew up in this church. And... Uh, her fiance, Danny Frank, and it was a beautiful service. Some of you were there, and it was an amazing service. 
And Denise grew up here, and so there were people from the church there supporting her because they helped raise her, right? And, and, and it just was amazing to be a part of this beautiful kind of multicultural uh, event of people from all over the world in this amazing service as their friends came together. And I just sat there going, God, you're at work in the world. And, and I keep forgetting that. And here you are in this couple doing amazing things. And here's people from Kingswood Church sitting at a table because we love Denise Parmar and we want to support her in her life together. Amen? So uh, there are lots of stories from this film, tons of them. And if you, if you ever get a chance to watch the film again, I hope you will. It's beautiful. But the thing that I love the most is that beautiful phrase, run, forest, run, because it's, a much more, it's about so much more than running. It's about living the faith. It's about having endurance. It's about being faithful when other people aren't. It's about being merciful and meek and peaceful and loving and compassionate and faithful and strong and a witness to justice in the world, right? It's about being a follower of Jesus. So I just say to you, as you live your life, as you live your faith, as you are clothed in Jesus, run the forest, run. Run.